1: Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 587 with Chris Marie Campbell. If you feel that uncomfortable feeling when conflict is a-brewing, Chris Marie has some excellent perspective on how to deal with that and get to some good stuff on the other side. So you'll learn, one, how to make conflict productive, two, the magic question for when you've reached an impasse, and three, a handy script for when you need to disagree with your boss. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to albums we've referenced, visit us at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP587. Now, here's a bit about her background. Chris Marie Campbell is a former Olympic and World Championship rower. She has also previously worked at Boeing as an engineer and helped initiate a groundbreaking cross-functional team approach for how Boeing designs and builds airplanes. Chris Marie, together with her partner, Susan Clark, founded Thrive, a coaching and consulting firm that specializes in helping individuals, leaders, teams, and entire companies learn how to deal with differences to ignite creativity and innovation. Big thanks to Chris Marie for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out Now, here's Chris Marie. Chris Marie, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome About Your Job podcast. I'm excited to be here, Pete. Well, I'm excited to talk about your wisdom. You have had adventures in uh, Olympic rowing, Boeing engineering, and now speaker, author, thought leader uh, in the realm of of conflict stuff. So could you just give us uh, a snippet, uh, an anecdote, a tale from your adventures in Olympic rowing?
2: Yes. Well, first you have to know, I did not pop out of the womb being, ooh, conflict. Definitely, I was a professional conflict avoider. And uh, I was rode at the University of Washington, go Huskies, and then went on to the Olympic team and the national team, really. I had two boats that were very different, high caliber athletes, we, you know, both teams. But one team, I call it the tale of two boats because one team shouldn't have performed and we did, and the other team we should have performed and we didn't. And what happened is in the year before the Olympic Games, I was on the national team and we had a group of people. I was wet behind the ears. i had never been really on the world stage. I was could have stroked the boat, which is the leader of the boat, the first person that everybody follows and sets the rhythm. But because I hadn't raced at a national level, that we had this conversation and we picked a more senior person who had been at the Olympics before to row. And so that boat, we trusted each other. We dealt with conflict, we had each other's backs. And when we came to the world championships, we hadn't beaten the Russians in like 15 years. And the Russians, they were so dominant. They were on lane one, which was smooth water on the inside lane. We were all all the way across the course on the outside lane, lane six, choppy water. And the start of the race happened, the Russians just took off and we were rowing in the pack. And then halfway through the race, the coxswain said, we're moving on the Russians. And you know, our boat just sparked alive and we picked up, in the end, Romania won gold, we won silver, but we were also happy to topple the mighty Russians. This big Romanian woman, we came to the docks, she had this big white hair. She picked me up in her arms, she picked another US rower in her arms, we beat the mighty Russians. (laughs) It was so cool. But that boat, we were able to deal with conflict and we trusted each other. Now, the Olympic year, we had the same caliber of people. My story was I was injured. And so I was off the water for three months before the Games and had to climb my way back in. I made it into the boat. But that boat, we had factions, we had egos. And when it came a month before, so bad strategic decision, a month before the games, we made a last minute decision to use an experimental boat. And I tell you, in that conversation, I didn't speak up. I couldn't row that boat, but I was like, who am I to say anything? I'm the last one in. I'm not going to speak up. And At the Olympic games, we came in a disappointing sixth and it was, it was really heartbreaking. And that boat was never rowed again. It was scrapped and because it was built on a computer, it was, you know, designed, but that team, I think we were more brittle because we didn't have conflict. We didn't speak up. I didn't speak up. And so I think that happens all the time in business where there's egos, factions, people say, well, it's not my place to speak up. And then you don't get good results.
1: Okay, well, that is a tale of two boats, and and handy an illustration there. Well, so so your book is called "The Beauty of Conflict." Uh, tell us, can you make your pitch for why, in fact, conflict is beautiful?
2: Yeah, and I never would have believed it. I think conflict is beautiful because when people are willing to hang in there and hold for the tension of conflict, because conflict is when you have, you know, different opinions, passion, and you're focused on a goal, and you bump into each other's different opinions. And we're not comfortable with that tension. So we tend to opt out and I'll just do it myself or wait a second, I just want to make sure you're okay with me, or I'm just going to focus on something else, not this problem. And so we don't hold for that tension. And that tension is potential energy, that conflict, that discomfort that none of us like is pure potential creativity. And what I've seen time and time again is when people can develop enough trust on a team or in a relationship to hold for that. What happens is new ideas emerge. That's not your idea, Pete, or my idea, but something else percolates up because we're holding that tension. And this happens all the time when we work with teams. We'll do a two-day offsite when we could meet in person. We're doing them virtually now, but you know that we develop trust. People get to know each other. They clear up some differences. And then we start talking about their business ideas and if they had started right at the first of the morning talking about it, they'd be grinding away. But when they've learned something to hold for that tension, new ideas percolate. And they have so many innovative and creative solutions that emerge. It's really powerful. So that's what I think the beauty of conflict is.
1: Well, so then it's intriguing that it says that you say it's uncomfortable and for everybody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so then... I think that's, that's handy to, to understand. It sounds, is it fair to say that it's, it's not so much that once, once we just understand the, the theory about why conflict is beautiful, then we no longer feel those feelings. I, I guess that's what I want to hear is. So I've done some training in, in uh, Myers-Briggs workshops and in thinkers versus feelers and it, what's really fun is that uh, I'm a feeler myself. Me too, Pete. I'll talk about conflict and I uh, will ask, Hey, if you if you You get this weird sensation of discomfort, like crawling on the back of your neck. Raise your hand, and uh, and usually it's mostly feelers and no thinkers who raise their hand. It's sort of a fun aha moment, like, oh, we are getting mutual understanding. Thanks, Pete. You're a great trainer. Anyway, that's what I'm going for. Uh, So, so for those who are feelers and 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 still have this uncomfortable and pleasant icky feeling like we'd we'd still would prefer to avoid the conflict. How can you encourage us and give us hope?
2: Yeah, you know, it is tough. And I think thinkers, because Susan is also a T and I'm an F in the Myers-Briggs, but it looks like they enjoy it. They like debate, but only kind of on their terms. If they get threatened enough in their ideas, it's uncomfortable for them, I think as well. My my story. I could be wrong. But I do think... So your question was how to actually get comfortable with it? Well, so yeah, maybe,
1: and maybe we never will. But if you could give us a little something so that we can feel better <laughs> when we're in the midst of it.
2: Right. Well, there are things that I actually do to help settle. And I teach people to do this, to help settle the nervous system. Because really, if you ask anybody what you learned about conflict growing up, that's a great team conversation. Because I grew up with an army colonel dad who was pretty angry at dinner times, pretty consistently, but you never knew what was going to set him off. And my older sister liked to press his buttons. So every night at dinner, I was like, oh my gosh, like, don't get him upset. And so I would change the subject. I'd rephrase what my sister said. I'd i do anything to kind of try to uh, diffuse the energy of conflict. So that's how I became a professional conflict avoider, and accommodator. I think what I learned is that was wired into my nervous system. So I've had to actually do things to help settle me in the midst of conflict. And one of the things that I do is I actually bring my awareness down to my feet. Because usually in conflict, my energy is up and out. I'm trying to manage and calm everything down, please. And if I actually bring my energy in and down... I cultivate a sense of safety in my own skin. I can also notice.
1: So you're just thinking about your feet and how they feel. Is this what you're doing there?
2: You can do this right now. Like wiggle your toes, swipe your feet, and just imagine you could feel your feet getting heavier. And almost you could even visualize like you've got roots coming out of the soles or cement blocks on them. And when I do that, because I've done that enough.
1: I'm waiting for you to insult me now. It's
2: like, okay, I'm ready. Bring it on, Chris Marie. Often what happens is I take a deeper breath. Because usually what I don't feel safe inside my own skin in conflict, I think, oh my gosh, you're going to get mad at me or you're going to attack my idea, or you're going to leave. So we we have these two basic things, either somebody's going to attack me or somebody's going to abandon me at, at the core root of who we are as humans. And that's the fear that comes up. So when I can cultivate a sense of safety in my own body, it expands my ability to tolerate the tension out there if you're upset at me. Does that make sense, Pete? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean,
1: I, I think I buy it as I'm, as I'm doing it right now. And I guess I used to, like when I was getting nervous, when I was an interview candidate, you know, job hunting, I would just try to plant my feet on the floor. It's like, all right, we're grounded here. And so it seems like you're really kicking this up a notch in terms of imagining cement blocks and weight and, and rooted firmness. It's sort of taking it to the next level. So I, I think that would be just as good or better
2: you can do feel your feet and also your seat. So you can feel the weight of your bum in the chair and just relax into it. Because again, I'm up and out trying to like, Protect. He's leaning back. Adjust the mic stand. It usually helps me settle down. And if I'm really stressed out, okay, let's say I'm really stressed out and I need to take a break. I actually go to the bathroom and I do a sound called VOO, V-O-O. And this is from Peter Levine. And what it does is it vibrates your vagus nerve, which is the second largest nerve in your body besides your spinal column. And that goes into your rest and digest. And anything you can do to turn on your rest and digest, which it actually, it floods your brain back with more blood. So you're thinking more clearly. When you're in that, what's going to happen here? We're in fight or flight or freeze or faint, whatever it is. And our brain is not online. So you're not going to be saying the best things or your eyes get very narrow, like there's the enemy over there versus opening up your eyesight and even turning your head sideways. That's another thing you can do. I would suggest doing it slowly and then picking an object and noticing it and then turning slowly again. And it gets you out of that oh my God, somebody's going to attack me over there, which is the beady-eyed narrow focus.
1: I love that. And I, I experienced that when I've done some keynotes in terms of if I'm just sort of doing this scan, I just I just somehow feel more powerful in terms of like, I am surveying my dominion <laughs> yeah, as opposed to, uh-oh, that guy thinks I suck. I can
2: so relate to that. <laughs>
1: When you say voo, does that it?
2: Yeah, it would be a big inhale and a voo. I'd keep doing it like a long exhale. And that's the vibrating. And you can even...
1: It seems like a lower tone too, as opposed to a...
2: I like to do it lower. Yeah. And if you purse your lips tight enough, you'll vibrate your lips, which by the way, even if you were in a meeting and you couldn't do the voo, you can touch your lips And that actually accesses your vagus nerve, which, again, goes to your parasympathetic rest and digest. So even a meeting, if you can't get out and go voo, because, you know, who wants to do that? You can just rub your lips like you're thinking, like, yeah, hmm, I wonder. And that's why kissing actually makes us feel better, because it's accessing our parasympathetic nervous system. It's one reason, you know, it it activates a lot, but...
1: (laughs) All right. Well well Chris Marie, this is the good stuff. It's simple, it's actionable, it's tactical, and I hadn't heard it before. So that's it's what I love to hear. Thank you. Absolutely. So there we have some some comforting approaches in when you're in the in the heat of the moment so, so that's that's really handy thank you well then let's discuss maybe the the actual content of of the conflict in terms of what makes it come about and and how do we engage it well in terms of actual maybe word choice or or dos and don'ts
2: well i think you most of us sometimes we're not aware we've just bumped into conflict like if if you're upset about something I've said, I may not be aware of it that, oh my gosh, we're all of a sudden in conflict. So to be aware and checking what are the signs and signals that somebody's upset, a feeler is probably hyper aware, could be, you know, scanning, are you okay with me? That sort of thing. If you are, let's say somebody gets defensive when you're saying something and you're kind of taken off guard, the Key that I usually suggest is rather than respond or apologize is actually just reflect back what you're hearing them say like, oh, so it sounds like you think I don't like your idea and I'm actually trying to put you down. Is that what you're thinking right now? Because one, if I take the time to reflect back, I'm buying myself time if I'm escalated or heightened. I'm also letting this person know that I hear them and see them and that they matter I'm not agreeing with them. I'm just reflecting back what they've heard. And that, I know when somebody does it to me, I often settle down and go, yeah, that is what I think is happening if if I'm brave enough to acknowledge that. And then that's a place of starting if you do bump into defensiveness, or even if you're defensive, you can reflect back what somebody else is saying as a way of buying yourself time.
1: All right. So, well, that's a, that's a handy tip, you know, right there. And is anything else that you recommend in terms of particular, I don't know, scripts or specific words that, that seem to really help out frequently?
2: Well, reflecting back is good. And then also usually the heat comes up inside of me. If I think you've said something that I take as like disrespect, that's how it it lands over here. And that's when I get upset. So rather than just assuming that's what you meant to do is actually stepping back and asking. So I heard you say, you know, the Olympics were dumb. I'm wondering, was it your intention to insult me uh, and my Olympic background? I just want to check. So (laughs) I'm pulling something. Has anyone ever said, yes,
1: yes, Chris Marie, I'm trying to stick it to you.
2: But you're usually not trying to stick it to me. You're usually just being you, but I take offense to it. And if I can say, rather than just react like, Pete, stop acting that way, or you're such a jerk, which often people do, rather than doing that to just, wait a minute, is that what your intention was? Because that's how it's landing over here. And often- You can say, well, yeah, I was in a snarky mood. I was trying to give it to you. And then there's something we can talk about. Well, I don't like that. (laughs) Or you can say, well, no, I was just teasing you or whatever is happening for you.
1: Okay, that is helpful. And then tell us what not to do, those are some some top things you recommend we, we do do. And what should we not do?
2: Well, assuming a lot of times, what happens is we take in information through our senses, what we see and hear, and then it, it goes through our own personal filter. And this is all our historic, significant emotional events, our gender, our culture, our race, what's ever happened to us. And we have this giant data table in our head that says, this is good and this is bad. And out pops our story. And the problem that that most people have is we think our story is right or fact. And so it's clear you don't respect me. That might be something that I lead with. We're like, no, 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 don't lead with your story. Actually break it down and said, well, I heard you say this. My story is you disrespect me, but I want to actually check it out and find out what is going on with you right now. So one, break it down and two, check it out. That's another uh, language thing. So you're, you're, you're not saying, am I right or not? You're just saying what fits and what doesn't fit. So it creates room for dialogue in this whole interchange. So what you don't want to do is assume your story is right. What you do want to do is break it down, check it out, and come to the conversation with some vulnerability and realness and also curiosity about maybe, just maybe, you aren't right about how this person is responding to you in that moment.
1: Well, that's really handy in terms of, I guess, disentangling, honest misunderstandings. And I I think that that really does cover a lot because most people, most of the time are not trying to stick it to you. Can you share then, when we think about healthy conflict versus unhealthy conflict, are there a, a couple sort of, you know, principles or guidelines that you recommend that just sort of all professionals follow all the time?
2: Well, there's no one right way to be like even teams, different collections of people have different things that they think is okay. Like you, you can work with a team in New York and they're into really hard nosed teasing and, and then somebody, a team in LA and they're all very polite and nice. (laughs) Those could be any two spots. So each collection of people has to figure out what fits for them in relationships. I think if I could give kind of When you're stuck in a spot, do you want to be relational or do you want to be right? And quite often we get stuck trying to be right because that's what we were trained to do in school is get the right answer. That's what got us the good grades. And that is, it just is never going to be an influential relationship tool. If I prove that I'm right to you, what does that make you? I'm wrong. Yeah. Who wants to be wrong? So I would say, notice if you're trying to be right, or do you want to be relational? And can you actually bring some curiosity, even if you think that, like we were dealing with a group, and we work a lot with teams of people, that's often what we come in and do. And so my examples are related to that. But we had a team, it was an executive team in China. And we had done kind of a one day of healthy, how to get along, deal with tough conversations. And then we were dealing with their business strategy. And they were coming up to something and everybody was kind of agreeing except for this one woman. And she had a differing agree. Well, they got so mad at her. It was almost like they were going to back her into a corner like, no, you have to agree with us. (laughs) And we said, time out. Wait a minute. Do you remember any of those tools that we taught you? And so one person said, okay, I want to see if I can do this. And first he went over and sat next to her. So not right across from her, but next to her and said, okay, and this is a magic question we suggest you ask in your relationships, at work, when you're at really big odds and you can't get through is, tell me, why is this so important to you? And he said, you keep pounding on this one idea, none of us agree with you. Tell me, why is this so important to you? And she started to talk And he was reflecting back. He was doing that really well. And then all of a sudden you saw that, like we were going through interpreters, so. (laughs) But all of a sudden you could tell like light bulbs started going off in his head because he had slowed down the conversation enough to get to what was underneath the strategy. So they were all fighting over strategies. But he said, why is this so important to you? And she was talking about how to grow the business in a whole different way. And then, you know, the whole room lit up and they totally took in her idea and changed their strategy to incorporate it only because he was willing to slow down enough to try to understand what was going on with her.
1: Oh, that is powerful. And and I think a lot of times we just sort of assume that the other side is aware of these strategic implications and we're just sort of ticked off like what's wrong with these people like what why on earth would you be advocating these things which are diametrically opposed to what we obviously need to be doing and then they say oh actually yeah we kind of forgot about that thing that we was we just would be doing and oh i do kind of see it. so is oh that's that's excellent and Well, and I'm curious, like, I I know that a lot of times we want to move quickly and we want to have something close-ish to consensus and we find that holdout irritating, like you're slowing us down and being difficult, uh, cut it out. So, but I think most of the time we don't, we don't say it like that, but but so what are, what are some of my, maybe the the words or phrases that uh, if we hear ourselves saying them or hear someone else Say them. we should be on the lookout like, ooh, watch out. You're, sounds like you're you're quashing dissent or or destroying psychological safety to to get the benefit of those holdouts.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it is like, could you just like what is your problem? That would probably be one of them. Is this fun for you to slow all of us down and be annoying? (laughs) Because again, usually people are just, they are putting the world together very differently. And so, yeah, could you just stop being a problem? You're always the naysayer. Why are you such a pain? We just all need to agree. And we don't actually believe in uh, consensus. We believe in having each person, uh, kind of as adults, we don't need to get our way, but we do need to feel heard and considered. So if you have that naysayer who can tend to be a scapegoat or, you know, the black sheep, if you can slow down and see how are you putting the world together? Because this happens all the time with Susan and I, we work together and she puts the world together so differently. And I have to admit, my first impulse is, you're just dumb. No way. You know, I have my arrogance about me because it's so clear to me. And I have been confronted with when I actually slow down and listen to her, I'm like, it's that same uh, aha, like, oh, wow, I did not think about that. And this is so important with what we're going through today and our divides, because it's like we all collect our different pieces of data differently and put a story around it. Most of us want health and safety and success, economic, and all these things, but we're almost too afraid to talk about it because we're talking about that top line like, you're right, you're wrong, versus, wait a minute, how did you come to that conclusion? That would be another good question. Like, help me understand how you came to your conclusion. And slow down and don't interrupt how they're putting the pieces together so you can see what's underneath that.
1: I love it when when someone shares a magic question, which you did, why is this so important to you or, or what makes that so important to you? Any other magic questions that we should all know?
2: Yeah. Help me understand how you put the world together, how you put these pieces together. That's one, like help me connect the dots. And then the other is why is this so important to you? Because what happens, this is a really good one in couples because we also work with couples and often you want to save money. I want to spend money. We're focusing on that. But when we slow it down, and couples usually want to get to a solution, work teams want to get to a solution. And so a lot of this is about slowing down and having the conversation, which seems like such a time waster in the moment, but it'll save you so much rework in the end. And you ask, why is this so important to you? You're going to get to people talking about what their values are and why this matters and what they're really trying to get at. And that's really the influence piece this is a neat little tool. You can use this at home. You can use it with a coworker. If you're really stuck in loggerheads, it's usually best done one on one. It's called the 555. Where let's say you have a topic, Let, let's say you and your business partner are talking about expanding and you one agrees and one doesn't. And so this five, five, five is you take the first five minutes and person A just talks about their position on that topic. There's no interrupting. B is just listening and letting it in and letting it soak in. And A has enough time, five minutes could feel like forever. You don't have to fill that whole space, but it's kind of like your space, your block of time to kind of hmm. Well I think this is why it's really important to me and wow I hadn't thought about that but and so what happens is the person's thinking out loud a bit more and they're connecting the dots and the, and B is witnessing and you use a timer at the end of the 5 minutes then you flip and B talks and A listens, again, uninterrupted, not with a lot of reactions or theatrics, just kind of taking it in. You don't have to take notes. You're just kind of letting it wash over you. And the last five minutes is a dialogue where that's where you can ask clarifying questions or wait a minute, I did you just say that? Because I disagree or you can have more of the dialogue. But at the end of the 15 minutes, you stop talking about it. It's not a 5545, it's a 555. Five, five. <laughs> mm. And what happens is the idea is not to come to solution, it's more this investigative process. And if you have a Stux issue and you did this like once a week or once a day or whatever it was, the right rhythm, you will find a much better solution. And you'll at least know, you'll have so much more clarity about what's going on with each of you and what you want to do in that situation.
1: Well, yeah. What what I really love about that is that in a way, so it's, it's time balance. That's great. You know, it's not going to carry on forever. So you feel a bit more, you know, maybe safe or comfortable going there. It's like, oh boy, this is such a mess. I don't even want to start. It's like, well, hey, no, we're we're doing 15 minutes. And in a way, the fact that it's it's likely incomplete after the 15 minutes almost creates an improved condition to have great ideas in, in terms of like, hey, I know some stuff I didn't know before. You know some stuff you didn't know before, and now just as we live our lives, we go to sleep, we wake up, we are in the shower. Like new ideas can can come to life over the interim period before the next conversation pops up.
2: That's true. I love that. And what you're describing is what we think happens in the brain. Your brain keeps working on it in the gap. And that's the same thing when you hold for the tension and you don't run to a solution or opt out of the conflict. Like the energy is held and things start to percolate. That's why new ideas emerge with a group or a pair of you versus just the same thing that happens in your brain happens in the system, if that makes sense.
1: Lovely. Well, well, tell me, I'm also curious, if it's someone more senior, you know, like your boss or your boss's boss, how do you play that game? If you have a difference of opinion and you're extra uncomfortable about bringing it up, what do you recommend?
2: You know, there was this study, that wasn't done by us, it was where this organizational development group, they would do a survey, What you know, they did the regular company surveys, and they said, hey, can we tack on a question just for our own research when we're doing your survey? And they said, sure. The question they added on is, who's most influential in your company? And if the name showed up three or five times, no big deal. But 30 times, they asked if they could shadow that person. And what they found is first, all the influential people weren't the VPs. They were scattered all around in the organization. And what they found is that those people were most influential when they were pretty average performers not too stellar, but 5% of the time when there was a difficult conversation, they showed up differently. And what they did is rather than let it go by or assume they couldn't speak to a person in power is they would actually basically check out their story and say, Hey, I heard you say this. I'm thinking this. So they're saying, I'm thinking I'm making up the story. My assumption is my theory is the story I'm telling myself is blank, but I want to check it out with you. Do you agree or disagree? And that simple model of, I heard you say this, or I saw you do this, so my story is blank, but I want to check it out with you, is a very, I'm speaking tentatively, I'm not attacking, I'm not assuming. That was so powerful in shifting the dynamics of the discussion that they were influential in specific situations, powerful situations.
1: Well, that's beautiful because, I mean, anyone can do that, and to know that... That could get you on the most influenced list with one little trick. I mean, it, it still takes courage to do it, but it, it's nice to know that there's a framework. And, and it, it's very hard to imagine the person on the other end saying, How dare you? You, you know, it's, it's sort of like, Oh, well, no, that's not what I meant. Or, I mean, I guess the worst case scenario is like, Yeah, you're darn right. That's what I meant. If you don't like it, you can get out. It's like, Oh, Okay. Well, I guess I know now where we stand. In a way, that's helpful
2: too. Right. That's clarity. I really appreciate that, Pete. You're exactly right. If Do you really want to be working for that type of person in that sort of situation? It does take courage. And we say courage is vulnerability and curiosity. We call those the two magic ingredients, vulnerability and curiosity. The willingness to share, this is how I'm putting the world together. And most people just want to ask a question. Like, do you really agree? You know, whatever it is, they just, they don't want to reveal themselves, but you are more influential when you do speak up and say, Hey, this is what I saw, or this is what I heard. And so this is the impact over here, the story I'm telling myself, but I want to check it out. And nine times out of 10, when people don't take those times to speak up, they start to feel smaller, like a victim and resentful. In the situation, if they have to take on more work or things like that. And even if I do speak up to you, let's you're in a position of power and I speak up and it doesn't go well, or I don't get what I want. You don't change. You're my boss and you still give me the same amount of workload. You're right. At least I have that clarity. And I also had my own back. I spoke up for myself. And that's often what I am coaching. I typically coach women leaders who are successful. They're smart. They're even assertive, but struggle speaking up to power in those 5% of the times to actually create the influence that they want. And I mean, it's because that was me. I remember my boss, I was working at Arthur Anderson for a big project and I was leading a team of six and we mapped out the strategy. My manager came in, uh, senior partner. And he said, you know, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to do all this. And he changed the whole thing. And I thought, that's not going to solve the client's problem. But I didn't say that. I just asked a question. I said, do you think that's going to solve a client's problem? And he barked at me, yes, get back to work. And, you know, I was catapulted back to the colonel, my dad's dinner table. And I shut up. We got to the end of the project. We did his, it didn't solve the client's problem. And of course, we wanted to have more work at this client. So all the partners came in, they invited the vice president in and, and all the project managers were sitting around the sides of the room, you know, the peons. They said, so how have we been doing? And he goes, this is a humiliating experience. He actually pointed to me and he goes, well, you know, that project Chris Marie ran, that was a disaster, complete disaster. Now my manager was sitting in the room. He didn't say, oh no, she followed my strategy. I took the blame for it. And I was like, okay, I got to figure out how to speak up because this is career limiting. And it often is when we don't learn how to speak up to power, and especially bully type power, we wind up feeling marginalized and less than, and we energetically shrink and take less risks, which I think is horrible.
1: (laughs) Well, you had to finish the story now, Chris Marie. So then what, what did you do in the moment?
2: <laughs> I, I did not know. I was I was, did not know. I actually met Susan like in a few months and saw her deal with a group of people. And this is probably why I thought of the bully. She is facilitating this group. And this guy was just being not very, I, I don't want to say anything bad on your podcast. He just wasn't being a nice guy. And she said, hold on a minute. And she went toe to toe to him And he said he backed down and the rest of the group, you know, took a sigh of relief. And I thought, I want to know what she does. And so that actually was the start of our working relationship because I wanted to work with her. And that was 20 years ago. I brought her into a project, a different project at Arthur Anderson. And she just was willing to stand up to people in power in a way that was strong and worked. And I thought, and so that's, that's, that's how I solved it. (laughs) I changed my whole career.
1: (gasps) Okay. And it's just sort of using the tools that you've spoken about here is like...
2: It's using the tools. And it's also really, Pete, I had to go through my own unprogramming of my nervous system based on my upbringing with the colonel, the dad, because I basically was terrified. But that wasn't because of what was happening in the room right now. It was actually because of how I grew up. And so when I realized, wow... This is just a autumn, like how, you know, it's an old th- pattern is it happens every time you feel the same way that grip on your shoulders. Mine was like, Oh, I remember I was in a situation where I recognized it. I looked down, my shoulders cool. I couldn't breathe. And, and I went to the bathroom and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I am terrified of conflict. And I was shaking and I came out and I said, you guys, this is with a, a, a group of friends and they were debating. And I said, I can't. I need you to stop. And they were actually more curious, but it was the start of me unraveling this pattern from before. And once I did that, you know, you can have all the tools, but unless you do kind of that discovery work, and it's often in the body and the nervous system, that is what really creates the free, the the courage, if that makes sense.
1: This is lovely. Thank you. Well, now, can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: Yes. It's not what you do. It's what you do next. And that's from Susan Clark, who I work with. And she is a great believer in, hey, if you say something and somebody across from you is like looking hurt or upset, it's not not to say it, but then to be interested, like, whoa, okay, something I just said, landed over there, you know, the way I didn't intend. Tell me what's going on and to be interested. So it's not what you do. It's what you do next.
1: And how about a favorite book?
2: Currently, I am reading Permission to Feel. And it is a, a book about how emotions are so important. And we try to pretend they're not there. And it's really harmful for us. And so how to actually deal with your own emotions as a tool to help you make better decisions and have a happier life.
1: Oh, thank you. And, and how about a favorite tool?
2: It's going to be feeling my feet in my seat because that I probably do that 20 times a day. It seems simple, but it's something that brings me back inside of myself versus trying to please or achieve. And it helps me settle down and make better decisions. So it's free. Indeed. And is there a particular
1: nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often.
2: A lot of people like, do I want to be relational or do I want to be right? They think about that in their primary relationships, because we so often want to be right when we're with our spouse. And that seems to really resonate for them. Ask yourself that in the midst of a a tense situation.
1: And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: You can check out our website, which is Thrive Inc. That's www.thriveinc.com. And I'm also Chris Marie Campbell on LinkedIn and Facebook. There's not too many of those that spell their name like I do.
1: (laughs) And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: I would say slow down and ask the people around you, why is this so important to you? To really find out how they're putting their world together. And while you're doing that, especially if you're getting triggered, feel your feet and your seat so you can keep coming back to yourself and not worry about changing them or agreeing or thinking you have to do something different because that's usually when we get ourselves upset.
1: All right. Chris Marie, this has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck in all of your conflict situations.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Pete. I appreciate that. You too.
1: I really love Chris Marie's take on the feet and the seat and how that can cause you to find some discomfort of conflict right away. And from there, you can get to the goods, because I think much of this game is just about starting to play it in the first place. So big thanks to Chris Marie. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep587. If you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe to hear from our next guest. It is... Luana Marquez, and she has some excellent perspectives on how to deal with anxiety and all flavors, not just conflicts. Hope to catch you there and peace.
0: Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation you can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.